for the Bible reading, we will be reading Matthew twenty-first, one through seventeenth. Matthew twenty-first. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, "Go to the village ahead of you." And at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and He will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, "See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey." The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colts and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the roads, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed、uh, shouted, "Hosanna to the Son of David!" Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, "Who is this?" The crowds answered, "This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee." Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who sell in doves. It is written, he said to them, "My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers." The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts. Hosanna to the Son of David! They were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants, you Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent nights. This is God's word. So. Over the course of our lives, we're going to have a handful of truly life-changing experiences—experiences experiences where there is a before and an after, and a clear line between the two. This could be things like moving or getting married.、Uh, for many people who didn't grow up in the church, there's a clear before Jesus, after Jesus line. I grew up in the church, so to be honest, when I think about experiences that totally changed my life. That's not the first one I think of. Okay, don't tell the elders to fire me. I love Jesus. I just didn't have that kind of before and after faith story. When I think of life-changing experiences, experiences that truly just disrupted life as I know it, the most obvious one for me is having our first child, Esther. There is a clear before and an after with that experience. Before Esther was born, Jeremy and I were just two young people in love. We traveled. We played in bands. We stayed up till two and slept till eleven because we could. But after Esther was born, 
our entire life changed. Our schedule changed. Right now, everything revolved around Esther's sleep schedule and her feeding schedule. My body changed. Everything felt really weird for a long time. Our friendships changed. Suddenly, as we and our friends were having kids, our conversations held more interruptions and our friendships were sustained largely just walking through the same exhausting stage of life together. Having kids disrupted my whole life. It changed everything. There are moments like this in our lives that change everything. Events that aren't just a weird distraction or a season, but a complete disruption of what was before and what came after. Today, we're going to talk about these two stories that we've probably heard before. The story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the story of Jesus overturning tables in the temple. But I want us to see the magnitude of what was happening here and why within a week of these two events, Jesus was on a cross. I want us to see how these two stories demonstrate the disruptive nature of what Jesus came to do. There is a clear before and after that Jesus came to usher in. In the verses Hui just read for us in Matthew 21, verse 10, we heard when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? This phrasing reminds us of what Matthew said was going on in Jerusalem back when the wise men announced the birth of Jesus. In Matthew 2, we read that when King Herod heard this, heard that there was a new king that had been born, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. That word translated stirred in our verses today in Matthew 21.10, it's used three times in the book of Matthew. And it literally means to shake, to agitate, to cause to tremble. So the whole city was shaking, trembling. The other two times that word is used are when the earth shook at Jesus' death and when the guards shook in terror when Jesus emerged from his tomb on Easter Sunday. It's from the same root word as the word for earthquake, like the earthquake that happened when the tomb was opened on Easter Sunday. Matthew's using this word on purpose because he wants us to grasp the magnitude of what was happening with Jesus coming. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem set off a massive disturbance in Jerusalem, which was the center of power in Israel. The center of political power, spiritual power, economic power, social power, all of it was in Jerusalem. And in these two events, his triumphal entry and his powerful acts at the temple, in those two events, Jesus demonstrated that he had not come just to reform the power of Rome or the temple hierarchy. He had come to completely disrupt these two centers of power and create an entirely new order. Today, we're going to talk about how Jesus in these two stories demonstrates that he is Lord over Rome and Lord over the temple. And then we're going to land with what does that mean for us as his followers? So Jesus is Lord over Rome, Lord over the temple. And what does that mean for us? So let's first talk about how Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was a clear demonstration that he had come to disrupt the power of kingdoms like Rome. So Jesus' entry into the city, it, it includes features of both Jewish and Roman entrance processions. 
These would be done uh, when, when soldiers would come home after a military victory, maybe at the arrival of an important person like a governor or a king, or just as a sign of dominance after a military had uh, triumphed over a city. And you can see up here a list of things that generally happened at these triumphal entries. Most often they included the appearance of the ruler or the general, often with their troops. If it was a military victory, they would have prisoners of war paraded in front of them. There was often a procession into the city, the honored person mounted on an animal. There were welcoming crowds celebrating the arrival of the important figure or the military victory. There were songs and hymns sung about the ruler. Prominent uh, figures from the city would make speeches to gain favor with these honored people. And it all led up to some kind of ritual sacrifice in the local temple, which demonstrated the ruler's possession of the, temp the city. So you can see in the slide that most of these things happened at Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem. He appeared at the entrance to the city with his followers. He rode in on a donkey. The crowds welcomed and sang hymns celebrating him, and he ended at the temple. But there's some important differences in Jesus' arrival to the city that were meant to set the kingdom of God over and against the kingdom of Rome. See, instead of parading in on a horse as a military triumphant warrior, Jesus rode on a borrowed donkey. Now, donkeys were also royal animals in Jewish tradition, but it's not a horse of war. It was not a chariot signifying some sort of military victory. Jesus rode a donkey to signify that his kingdom was not like that of Rome. His peace was not won by intimidation and violence. He had come to Jerusalem not to subdue her people by military power, but to serve her people by laying down his life for them. King Jesus has not come to conquer and enslave, but to serve and liberate. In verse 5, Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9. 9. If we look back to Zechariah in chapter 9, the prophet is announcing what the reign of God will be like. He says that in God's kingdom, God's presence brings lasting peace. In God's kingdom, old and young, everybody gets to just enjoy peaceful community together. In God's kingdom, people go about their daily lives without fear. In God's kingdom, the land flourishes and is fruitful. In God's kingdom, there's just spontaneous, joyful celebrations because of all the good things they see God doing. There's salvation for the Jewish people, yes, and there's salvation for all nations, all people. And in Zechariah 9, he says that all of this, all this goodness of God's kingdom will be brought about by a shepherd king who comes righteous, victorious, and humble riding on a donkey. Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is setting in motion the eternal and glorious reign of God, and that Jesus will not be a king like Rome's emperor. His reign is of a different order altogether. He has come to be king, not only over Israel's territory, but over all the earth, yes, over Rome, 
He has not come to just reform Rome's empire and try and make them nicer. No, he has come to do away with all empires like Rome who gain power through violence and keep power through oppression. And the people lining the streets here as he rode in were expecting this. They were hoping for this. So when they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, that's a messianic title. They were hoping for someone to set them free from Rome. Listen, it's easy for us because we're so far removed from life in Jesus' day to miss the political significance of this. We have to remember that this environment that Jesus was born into, okay, 60 years before Jesus was born, all of Palestine was subdued by Rome. During all the time Jesus lived, there were lots of revolutionaries who attempted to throw off by war Rome's oppression. In fact, during Jesus' lifetime, a city near his home in Nazareth was completely destroyed when a man named Judas attempted to rise up against Rome. And within 40 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, Rome marched to Jerusalem and destroyed it. That's the environment that Jesus lived in, where he preached, where he did ministry. It was an emotional time of nationalistic fervor. When we understand that, and when we understand the significance of Jesus' entry into the city as this prophetic demonstration against the power structure of Rome, then we see as clearly as Matthew where all of this must be heading. His entrance into the city was revolutionary. And the political leaders of Jesus' time saw it as such. After Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he headed to the temple, which we would expect as we look back at those features of a Roman triumphal entry. But just as his entrance into the city was meant to assert his authority as king, his entrance to the temple was a prophetic demonstration of his authority over the temple. So when Jesus arrived at the temple, if he were following the Roman custom of this entrance processional, or even honestly, the traditional entrance of a Jewish, like Israel's kings of old, if he was following those customs, he would have offered a sacrifice at the temple on behalf of the people of the city. Instead, Jesus dramatically clears the temple of all the economic activity that was going on there. It seems like Jesus has come in opposition. He's been telling his disciples that he's going to be killed by the religious leaders of Israel. And here we see this direct confrontation with them. We read that he drives out people who are buying and people who are selling. He kicked out the people who changed money, people who were providing the change people needed for the temple tax. He kicked out the people selling doves to the poor for their sacrifices. In verse 13, we read, It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This verse here is quoting two Old Testament uh, prophecies, two Old Testament passages, one from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah. In Isaiah 56, 7, the prophet speaking for God says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God is speaking in Isaiah of a day when he's going to gather everybody together to worship him, both Jew and Gentile alike. He will gather people from all corners of the world, everyone to come near to him and worship. It's 
an inclusive vision of God's kingdom, a kingdom intended to bless the entire world. And Jesus is indicting the temple leadership for failing to live up to this inclusive vision. He says, instead, they're doing what the people in Jeremiah's day were doing. This is why he then quotes Jeremiah. See, in Jeremiah chapter 7, God is speaking against the leaders of Israel. He's accusing them of social injustice, of oppressing foreigners, immigrants, orphans, widows. And he says, has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. It's likely that in Jesus' day, this buying and selling that Jesus disrupts was set up in the Gentile court, which was the only place in that day non-Jewish worshipers could go in the temple. So this was probably making it hard for them to worship with all this noise of this marketplace going on. So Jesus gets rid of that. He kicks that out. And it's also important to pay attention to after Jesus clears the temple of this economic activity that's disrupting worship, it's important to notice who he invites in. Matthew 21, 14 says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Jesus is in this passage, in essence, correcting the misuse of the temple. He's challenging the religious leaders about what they have allowed to happen in the temple. He's saying the temple is not supposed to be a place of economic activity, making money and buying things. It is supposed to be a place of healing. It is supposed to be a place where people are made whole. It is supposed to be a place where people from every nation can come and meet with God. And in correcting the misuse of the temple, Jesus is acting as one who has authority over what happens in the temple. And on top of this, the children are nearby and they're still singing, Hosanna to the son of David, continuing this song that the crowd was singing as he entered the city. This, this phrase, son of David, is a royal title. It's a messianic title. And the priests and the teachers of the law go to Jesus and say, hey, do you hear what these kids are saying? You better tell them to stop it. They expect Jesus to correct the children. But instead, Jesus corrects them. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Jesus coming to the temple is an incredible disruption. He disrupts the entire sacrificial economy as it was set up. He literally overturns tables as a symbol of his plan to overturn everything about how the leaders of Israel think things should be run. His actions are a prophetic rebuke of the job the religious people had been doing in facilitating worship in God's house. Jesus' actions are meant as a prophetic sign of judgment on a system that is more concerned with hoarding power than with mediating God's presence to those in need. And Matthew's audience has witnessed the destruction of the temple in 70. They've, they know already as they're reading this, that the temple was destroyed. And so they would make a clear connection that a system that serves itself instead of people comes to a disastrous end. In these 17 verses, Jesus has declared his authority over Rome, 
and over the temple in Jerusalem. He has declared he is on the side of the poor, the oppressed, the Gentile, the outsider. He has challenged the political, economic, and religious systems of Israel. Matthew tells us all of this to get us ready for what's coming in just a few short chapters. The only place this can end is the cross. This is heavy. These familiar stories, right? This nice picture of Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem with the shouts of children waving palm branches, this sweet picture we have. It seems so joyful, so innocent, but it's incredibly subversive. So what is Matthew's message for us as followers of Jesus? What is he trying to communicate to his original audience? And what does this mean for us 2,000 years later as Jesus followers today? I think in these narratives, there are a couple of really important messages for us. Two really important truths Matthew wants us to know and reflect on. The first truth is this. The kingdom of God stands over and against every power structure in the world. The kingdom of God stands over and against every power structure of this world. As we've said last week, the kingdoms of this world, they come and go. And they are all, at their core, opposed to God's reign because the kingdoms of this world want their power. Rome wanted to retain its power. Oh, they provided their citizens with some rights. They developed roads. They kept peace. But Rome used military might and intimidation and violence to subdue people into cooperation. The leaders of the temple, they wanted to retain their power. Their power was limited because of Rome, but they kept the power they had by hanging heavy burdens around people's necks to keep them in line, essentially by spiritual extortion. Do what we say, or God won't be happy with you. And God was not going to put up with any of that. I think that means two things for us. First, it means that since Jesus came to disrupt earthly power structures, we should not put our hope in any of them. Rome could not save. The temple hierarchy could not save. The United States cannot save. The Democratic Party cannot save. The Republican Party cannot save. Our hope is not in our government, in a better leader, or even in ourselves. Our hope is in the one true king who will one day return and reign in perfect justice, perfect peace, and perfect love. That is as followers of Jesus where our hope comes from. The second thing this means for us is if Jesus came to disrupt earthly power structures, that tells us something we should probably do with any power we might have. Jesus surrendered his power and position in service of humanity. And as followers of Jesus, that's what we're supposed to do too. This is a challenging word for us. In any area of life where we have power over others, we need to soberly consider Quite often in scripture, God is opposing the powerful, calling them out for how they are holding on to their power or position or privilege and how they're causing harm to others in the process. So we need to consider this. Do we have power in our workplace over our children as a leader here in the church community? How are we interacting with that position of power? Do we demand our way because I'm the boss or I'm the parent or just, in my case, I'm the stronger personality? 
Or are we like Jesus, surrendering our power, surrendering our rights, surrendering our privileges in order to make things better for other people? So this first truth from these passages is that the kingdom of God stands over and against every power structure of this world. The second truth is that Jesus is on the side of those who are hurt by earthly power structures. Jesus spent most of his time with poor people in a rural community. He healed the sick. He encouraged the poor. He ate with sinners and outsiders. So if you are someone who has been hurt by the broken systems of power in our world, this is good news for you. He is on your side. He sees you. If you have ever felt excluded from God's presence by gatekeeping religious people, Jesus sees you and he wants to invite you in. If you are hurt, Jesus wants to heal you. If you are alone, Jesus is with you. Jesus wants you to know that even if other people treat you like you don't belong, there is room for everyone in his kingdom. You are welcome in his kingdom and he loves you. God sees you when you're suffering, when you don't have enough, when justice is not done. God sees the family forced into homelessness by a couple of bad months and unjust housing practices. He sees the woman sitting in jail month after month because she can't afford a lawyer to actually help her. He sees the refugee torn from home by war and violence and unable to start a new life because of unjust immigration laws. He sees the woman struggling to overcome her addiction so she can be with her kids again, trapped in a cycle of pain and addiction. He sees the student whose depression feels overwhelming but can't afford a therapist. When you are hurt by the unfair way this world works, God sees you. He is on your side. He is right with you, right where you are, and he loves you. In the Bible, over and over again, we read that God is on the side of the oppressed, on the side of the poor, on the side of the excluded and mistreated. God sees you. Far from being just a simple, nice story about children waving palm branches, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was a subversive act that led directly to his death. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be walking through the events of the last week of Jesus' life. The last things he said, the last places he went, the last things he did. Today, we have an opportunity to soberly reflect on Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. The event that set him squarely in opposition to the political and religious powers of his day. We are invited to consider where our hope and our allegiance really are. Are we caught up in the kingdom of God or has a lesser kingdom captured our allegiance? We are challenged to remember that Jesus surrenders his power and welcomes in the excluded. And as followers of Jesus, that's what we're called to do too. And we're encouraged that when we are the poor, the oppressed, the excluded, Jesus sees us and he's on our side. Let's pray.
Jesus, this is a strong, heavy message to consider. I confess that I like to read these stories more just as cute things about kids waving palm branches than I do want to really grapple with what the way, with how the way you interacted with, with Rome and the temple, how that's supposed to change me, how that's supposed to call me to greater surrender, greater humility, greater service. That's what this season of Lent is for, to spend time contemplating the things that still need to change in our hearts and in our world, to grieve the brokenness, and to ask for your help, for your empowerment to change us, to change the world. God, you are so good that you speak to each of us right where we are. And your challenges are always loving challenges, calling us in, not pushing us out. So help us hear from you this morning. Help us hear your voice, your voice of love, comforting, challenging, encouraging. Help us hear what it is you want for us this morning as we consider this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.